This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by David Farland's Writing Workshops. Go to www.mystorydoctor.com to find out more. Season 9, Episode 50. This is Writing Excuses, writing for the enfranchised reader. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary. And I totally saw that coming. <laughs> and these are our students. <laughs> we are live at the Writing Excuses Retreat 2014. And um, writing for the enfranchised reader. I can warm the worms this from the last episode, but I knew I was going to because Mary had already pitched this episode to me, and I thought <laughs> this is bigger than one episode. Uh, something I've been thinking about a lot is the idea that writing, great writing works on multiple levels, um, and a lot of great stories work for multiple types of readers. Um, a great example of this for me is The Wheel of Time. Uh, Wheel of Time is one of those series that I was able to read as a young man and be really thrilled by the coming-of-age quest story of the young protagonist. As a journeyman writer in my early 20s, I was in awe of the use of viewpoint and the world-building, and later in my life, I actually got to write on the series. So I have three distinct phases of my life on it, and The Wheel of Time worked for me as an enfranchised reader, as well as as a new reader. Some of the books I loved when I was younger did not work for me as an enfranchised reader. I knew the plot structure too well, everything went by the numbers too much for me, and I was not able to enjoy the series any longer now that I'd grown up. I want to talk about how we do that, how we write for the enfranchised reader, both how we can give them interesting extra bits and how we can fool them, or anything else the podcasters want to say regarding writing for people who know what, who know their genre really well. Well, one thing that I want to flag about Wheel of Time and, and with a lot of older texts is that sometimes it's not necessarily that the reader has gotten older. It's that, um, it, you know, it's not a difference between the age of the reader. It's that a lot of times a text is groundbreaking when it comes out. And mm -hmm. So many people have copied it. Yes. When you hand an older text to a reader that it sometimes feels like it's yes. not Yes, and that's a, that's a different issue entirely, but similar to this. Um, so I know the, the film... Um, John Carter of Mars had a huge problem with this in mm -hmm. that it was groundbreaking as a book um, when it first came out a century ago, but now it's been copied so many times that the film felt derivative. Yeah. Well, a, a similar problem that exists, though, that I think d does have to do with enfranchisement is, you know, the kind of the gateway books, mm -hmm. uh, books like uh, Aragon. Yes. That, you know, I have read that story so many times in so mm -hmm. many other books, but... For an entire generation of readers, that was the first time they'd seen it. And so it was all incredibly fresh and new to them. Yeah. And it worked in a different way. Yeah, and this is, this is actually one of the points that I wanted to bring mm -hmm. up about this, is that the genre is, uh, is a conversation with itself. Yes. And so that's one of the things that will happen when you have an older text, when you have new readers coming in, being aware that your, your text is not necessarily going to be read by someone who is familiar with the genre, but it may also be read by someone who is deeply steeped in it. Mm -hmm. And they will have completely different reactions depending on where they are on that spectrum. I got a lot of that with the Partial series. Um, because it, you know, it's, it's post-apocalyptic science fiction and, and much more science fiction-y than a lot of the, the YA genre is right now. You know, you'll you read something like uh, Cinder by Marissa Meyer, which I adore. But it is not a science fiction book. It's 
an adventure book that has robots and spaceships in it, you know, and there's a difference in the way that it uses the tropes. And so a lot of the audience, the YA audience, doesn't know what to do with partials, mm -hmm. uh, whereas a lot of science fiction readers read it and then don't know what to do with the YA elements. I get that with Shades of Milk and Honey, that people come into it expecting Regency romance, and then they hit this magic. And <laughs> I've seen reviews that said, this book was fine until she introduced Glamour, and I think she just made it up. <laughs> I'm just like, well, you caught me. <laughs> wow. Pretty sure Glamour's in chapter one. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of my favorite, uh, it, I, I watch a lot of movies, and I don't get surprised often by the form, uh, but one of the most recent and delightful surprises for me was in the movie Meet the Crudes where right up until the point, I don't know how many of you have seen it, there is a, it. it's the caveman movie with Nicolas Cage as the voice. Anyway, uh, the, we are following the, the teenage daughter who wants to get out from under her father, and that is the story, and then we come to the part where dad has to throw the family across the chasm, and that is his moment to save all of them, and then we follow dad back through the wasteland mm -hmm. instead of following them forward. And I remember looking at that and thinking, oh my gosh, this is a story about dad saving his family and then going back with nothing and having to ask himself if he can change. Completely, completely floored me. You watch it a second time, you think, oh, Oh, they telegraphed that. Oh, they right. telegraphed that. But that's this experiential thing. Once you've been through it once, once the ground's been broken, it feels obvious. I would say that there are a couple of, of tricks you can do. That's a great one. Um, I actually had that same reaction to that film, um, where what was going on is, and, and I've done this in a number of my books, is there is a very common um, and well-used plot archetype to run as a through line through the book, for um, to kind of, in some ways, act as the familiar, that you can then mix other, less common, and more, in some ways, more, I don't want to say challenging, but just definitely different plot arcs through, in order to give both levels. Um, yeah. And this is going to, not just, not just for enfranchised versus non-enfranchised readers, for the reader themselves, you know, any reader, We'll look at that and be like, there'll be this familiar through line of a plot that, okay, I know basically how this one's going to go. That's comfortable to me. I'm loving that. And because there's so much other bizarre stuff going on, I can latch onto that. The example I use is The Way of Kings, in which um, there, is a, there is an underdog sports story, which is the running through line theme of this, um, of this, and it hits all of the major points of the underdog sports story and works very well as a cohesion for this while I'm doing very bizarre things with some of the other plot through lines. Um, and in a very big book like that, it's given a lot of different people different things to latch onto and has worked beautifully for making the book stand for different people um, at the same time. And now, go ahead, please. Well, one of the other things about that is that you are bringing the underdog sports mm -hmm. is, some, is a trope that is from outside science yes. fiction and fantasy. Yes. And so I think that one of the things you can do to help surprise an enfranchised reader um, is to use tropes that they are less familiar with. Right, or that they're familiar with, but they don't expect to find in their fantasy book. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and they don't expect to get that. So the Ender's Game is an underdog sports story. You don't expect to get underdog sports story in a war book about alien invasion. And when you do, 
you you piece of you knows how that story is going to go so you can anticipate the beats and love them as they come but it's happening in such a fresh way that you're also engaged by the wonder of it yeah i i wanted to point out that sometimes you can use a reader's enfranchisement against them mm -hmm. uh, which is great and and my favorite example of this is the movie scream yes which mm -hmm. sets up its first series and and really what they're doing is they're presenting a character as the main character. Yes. Drew Barrymore was the most famous person in that movie at the time it was made. She was the biggest face on the posters. And the, the plot trope presents her as this is the first step of a long arc that she's mm -hmm. going to have to overcome. And then five minutes later, she's dead. Yeah. And that, in a horror movie, is a really effective way of saying, you know, all bets are off. I just tricked you. You know, it, it works well. You have to be careful, though, right. if you're using a trope specifically to subvert it. Because if you do it wrong, all it will do is make people mad. Right. And the reason it works in Scream so well is they're going to that movie wanting to be tricked. Mm -hmm. Because that's the type of movie. They want to have the twist ending. They want to have the slasher film. They want to see people dying in unusual and surprising ways. And so when they, it's, it's almost less subverting the trope and one-upping the trope and saying, we're yeah. going to go even a step exactly. further than what you wanted. And so people go into that movie and love how it happens. Now, you can't do that anymore because now it's, you know, it's, it's, it's been done. It's, it, well, and everyone knows now. But when it came out, like, you thought she was the hero mm -hmm. of the film. It was on all the publicity pr promotional material, so it was really shocking. Well, and so the, the takeaway for that then is, you know, you can go and find those kind of tropes yes. and use those kind of things uh, to, to trick your own enfranchised readers in some other way. Now, we'll, we'll get back to this in just a minute, because I think this is a very important one. Hey, writers. Are you thinking about learning a new language? I think exploring the world, experiencing other cultures, and being able to communicate with people outside your everyday experience lets you create richer, better stories. A great way to do that is with Rosetta Stone, a trusted expert for over 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. They use an immersive technique, which leads to fast language acquisition. It's an intuitive process that helps you really learn to speak, listen, and most of all, think in the language you're trying to learn. They also feature true accent speech recognition technology that gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's like having a voice coach in your home. Learn at home or on the go with a desktop and mobile app that let you download and access lessons even when you're offline. And it's an amazing value. A lifetime membership gives you access to all 25 languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Japanese, and, of course, Korean. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Writing Excuses listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Um, let's go ahead and stop um, and talk about David Farland's writing workshops. Dave is the person that Dan and I took a class from that really kind of jump-started our writing careers, wouldn't you say, Dan? Absolutely. He was, uh, he was the one who, 
both Brandon and I grew up wanting to be writers, but not really taking it seriously. And Dave was the one that convinced us we could do it for a living and make it work and taught us how. And we both took one of his classes. It was offered at the university at the time. And I, it was the single most useful class I took in my university career. Counting grad school and undergrad, hands down. Mm -hmm. um, the writing advice he gave, I still use as writing advice and I still use when I teach my class. I think it is, is excellent writing advice. His career advice was also really good. Um, and so when he came to us and asked if he could sponsor a podcast, we gave an enthusiastic yes, um, because this is um, something we can endorse. And he does a lot of writing workshops now. You go fly to his home and you stay with him and you work on your on your writing with him. And there's more information at mystorydoctor.com. I want to sign up for this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Dave's blurb says that... Um, each class provides instructional videos followed by writing assignments where Dave gives you his personal feedback. So it looks like he's doing some online courses as well. Um, in addition, you'll take part in an online meeting so that you can ask Dave any questions you want. Okay, so this is for an online one, but he also has ones you can fly to his house and do. I know he's doing those as well. So all across the board, Dave's advice is fantastic. I would go to mystorydoctor.com if I were you and look into this. Uh, he offers a free book on writing um, if, you, if you go to the website. Um, so, I wanted to get back to this idea of subverting a trope because there's also a big danger here, which I've raised before, but I want to raise again, in that if you wait too long to subvert the trope, you have the danger of being bland at the beginning and losing the very readers you're trying to get or alienating the readers who like, who, who are the new readers. It's not that it's bland, it's just that it's not fresh to the enfranchised reader. This is the danger you, you, you have here is that you want your book to work for multiple audiences. You don't want the person who's never read a fantasy book to pick it up and be completely lost most of the time. If you're Steven Erickson, then you probably do, and it's okay. Um, <laughs> but um, most, for most books, you want them to pick it up and find something to really latch onto. And you also want the enfranchise reader to pick it up and very early on say, oh, wow, this trope is really getting subverted in an interesting way. I feel like this entire book is going to be fresh to me because of that promise, and I can enjoy it. Yeah, you don't want them to feel like they are waiting for the trick. Yes. And sometimes I see, I mean, sometimes I feel myself fighting that in an outline, but I'll see that in, in, uh, in submissions mm -hmm. where it's clear that the author has had this gee whiz idea, and uh -huh. they're like, I need to put in my time before I can pull this really cool thing. Yes. And so the characters are all just kind of going through their paces, and right. they're but there's no conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing. There's nothing at stake, really. It's just it's a waiting game until they get to the really cool trick, and that's when things start mm -hmm. taking off. Right. And the instinct to delay the trick is not necessarily a bad idea. It no. could be. But what the, they need to do is be making that first part as interesting as the trick. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the the horrible recent example of that was the TV show Agents of Shield, mm. uh, yes. which mm. yes. was dreadfully criminally boring for about 22 episodes and then they finally played their hand and it was riveting for like three yeah and and that's not because the show required that trick in order to be good it's because they didn't allow the characters to really do anything interesting until that point i would be and you know if this is going to include spoilers for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but mm -hmm. I would be really interested to know if they told the actor who was playing Ward that he was a double agent, because he is so bland all the way up until that moment, and then once At that which happens, point? 
he's an absolutely magnetic character and, once and he turns. clearly a really good actor. Yes. And so I think that he must have known and was playing it. I, I think you're right, and I think that that is an empirically terrible decision on yeah. the part of whoever did it because it made the first part of the show so boring. Yeah. So other hit, uh, other tips on doing this. I'm going to throw I out one. With, oh, go ahead. Uh, uh, I use my writing group a lot, and mm -hmm. I ask them, you know, when I'm a third of the way through the current Schlockmert, or two-thirds of the way through the current Schlockmert scenario book, we have a writing session, or a, a critique session, in which I ask them, okay, up to this point, what are the promises you felt like I've made, and what are the ways in which you personally would resolve those? And sometimes what I'm asking for is, please help me find an ending, and sometimes what I'm asking for is, please tell me what not to do because it's obvious. And I the information I get, mm -hmm. the information I get from Sandra and from Bob and Dan and my brother Randy um, is absolutely invaluable. I'll come up with two pages of notes that totally inform uh, Act 3. Yeah, I did that in, uh, in Valor and Vanity. I had, you know, tell me what you think is going to happen next. And someone said, well, so-and-so is clearly totally going to walk into the next scene. And I was like, Actually, so-and-so really was clearly going to walk into the next scene, but not anymore! <laughs> I would no. say another quick tip is diversify your portfolio. Yeah. Meaning, um, this, this you don't have to do it with every book. Putting all your eggs in one basket can be very effective. But what I mean by this is multiple characters with multiple arcs, multiple plots, and multiple, multiple ages. One of the reasons The Wheel of Time, bringing it back to that, worked so well for me is as I aged, I began identifying with different characters at different stages in their lives who had different plots from what was going on with the other characters. And as I had read the books the first time, I focused on one thing. As I read the books as an enfranchised reader, I had a completely different set of characters to latch onto. Um, now, the danger of this is that you may have readers dislike one group of characters and like another. And that's kind of the whole diversifying. That's what happens in economics, too. You may have one go poorly and the other one go well for a while, and it overall makes the story stronger. But there are books where you just are focused, really, the YA does this a lot, on one character with one plot very dynamically. And if that doesn't click with the reader, well, then that's not going to be a book for them, and that's okay. Yeah, and mm -hmm. you can actually do that even with a single POV character. Yeah, you can. Uh, so I don't, you know, don't think that you suddenly have to have cast of, right, POV right. cast of thousands. Uh, but you could also, I mean, done very commonly, this is why the, um, the love triangle has, it's become a cliche, but why it's it's good is that having two separate romances going on at once allows you to do two different styles of romantic storytelling to grab two different types of audiences and have two different plot arcs going on at once. Well, have actually, one of those audiences mad at you. Yes, yeah. you're going to have one of those audiences <laughs> mad. I actually think that one of the reasons that um, that the love triangle came up yes. was to get around the pro the problem of if there's only two people, of course they're right. going to wind up together yes, at the yes. end. And so I think that that was probably something where someone was attempting to subvert by having two love interests, and mm -hmm. then it became a common trope. Yep. All right, we're out of excuse, out of excuses. We're out of time <laughs> we and excuses. Have plenty yeah, of we, have, <laughs> we have all the excuses. Yeah, we do. Howard, you've got our writing prompt. I do. Um, take a take a mentor character uh, and find a way. Uh, just in in outline form, give yourself a hundred word outline. Find a way to take the mentor character and not kill them off 
so that they don't save the day. Do something, do something different uh, with the mentor character. And I don't know what it is because you're going to do it and it's going to be different. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.